Good morning. Happy New Year. I always love this time of year because of the opportunity for new beginnings and the chance to make some needed changes in my own heart and my own life and renew that desire to pursue Christ and the things of him. And it makes me think of when I was back in school and I had to turn in the rough draft of a paper or an essay. And I would get the paper back and all I could see was red. Red pin marks everywhere. I didn't even see the grade. And I saw those question marks where I needed to make some changes. But that initial rough draft is just that. It's rough. There are always cuts and improvements to be made. And you might see a few circles where something needed to be more of an emphasis in your paper. But you also hopefully see some check marks where you were on the right track and the teacher saw a few good things there in your paper. And it's helpful to do something very similar in our own lives at the end of a year or at the beginning of a new year. It's helpful to reflect on those question marks, those questionable, what was I thinking moments that we would like to cross out if we could. You may also see a few areas in which God has circled or highlighted those areas perhaps in our character that that we might need to revisit. But hopefully you see some check marks as as well. And it's good to celebrate those check marks and exclamation points and praise God where he saw you doing a good work. And this kind of self-evaluation is healthy because we are all works in progress. And we need God year after year to keep chipping away and refining those impurities in our lives as we are conformed into the likeness of Christ. But becoming more like him is not something that comes natural. It's not something that we can do in our own flesh. We need the power and the help of the Holy Spirit. And with the Spirit, we should make it our ambition to imitate Christ so that when others see us, they see him in us and they would be drawn to him as well. And we see a great example of this in our text this morning in Acts chapter 4. The book of Acts is a record of the beginnings of the Christian church in the shadow of Christ's death and burial and resurrection. We see followers of Jesus who were cowards at the end of the Gospels. And now they are courageous leaders here in the books of, book of Acts, and, and they are transformed into these courageous leaders. At the beginning of Acts chapter 3, 
Peter and John come across this beggar who he hadn't had the use of his legs since birth for over 40 years. And the beggar comes up, or the beggar looks to Peter and John for some money. But Peter says, silver and gold, I do not have. But what I do have, I give to you. And it's far more valuable to you than money. In the name of Jesus Christ, walk. And it's not Peter's touch that heals this man. Peter simply pulls him up. It was the spirit of God that restores this man's feet and ankles and legs. Muscles and tendons that had never been used before are suddenly given strength and definition. And this man doesn't exactly take things slow like a wobbly toddler learning how to walk. No, it says that he leaps and he praises and he runs. And where does he run first? He runs right to the temple. He goes to praise God who has just healed him. And Peter uses this miracle as a platform to preach the gospel and to preach the resurrection and to tell everybody that Jesus is alive and that they too could rise from the dead one day if they believe in Jesus. And we read in Acts 4.1 that the priests and the Sadducees, they arrest Peter and John and they put them into custody overnight. The next morning, the Sanhedrin gathers to interrogate Peter and John. And the Sanhedrin was made up of 71 of the wealthiest, most intellectual, most powerful Jewish leaders. And this council of elders and scribes, they asked Peter in verse 7, by what power or in what name have you done this healing? And then verse 8, Peter filled with the Spirit, says in verse 9, if we are on trial for doing a good thing for a sick man, then let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that it was by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this once crippled man now stands here before you. We'll come back to verses 11 and 12 in just a moment. But look at verse 13, our key verse this morning. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. We see four principles here on how it is we should imitate Christ. First, imitate Christ in a way that is visible to those around you. It says in the first part of Acts 4.13 that the Jewish leaders observed these followers of Christ, Peter and John. They stood out because of their faith. 
Standing out for our faith doesn't mean preaching out on the street corner, but our faith should be obvious and recognizable. There should be something different that others perceive when they look at our lives. I remember hearing the story of a woman who had been a believer for over 25 years. But as she was listening to a sermon on the radio about what a true follower of Christ looked like, she realized that perhaps others around her wouldn't even know that she was a believer by looking at her life. Could the same be said about you? Would others know whom it is that you live for and serve and worship when they observe your life? Or would they see someone not so different from those who simply follow the ways of the world? Do you resemble Jesus? As some of you may know, I have an identical twin brother, and his name is Sam. And he has visited Wayside several times, and when he has visited, it has definitely thrown off some folks. People thinking that he's me. So if I neglected to say hi to you or to smile at you in the hall, I apologize. It may not have been me. Because our resemblance is obvious. When people observe your life is a resemblance to Christ, obvious. We, of course, can't be fully like Christ, this side of glory. But does the artist, when she paints, get discouraged because she may never reach the greatness of a Monet or Da Vinci? Does the musician give up because he may never play the piano or compose music to the level of a Beethoven or Mozart? Does the writer fail to put words on paper because she may never write something like Jane Austen or William Shakespeare? No. They work and they strive at their art because it's their passion. And they are inspired by greatness. And perhaps they would love to, in some humble sense, resemble those great works from those great masters. The same with the believer. Our deficiencies are enormous when held up to the image of Christ. But instead of just giving up, we can look to God and say, Lord, I need you to do a restoration in my heart. This is a glaring weakness. Just as the art restorer comes in and needs to occasionally strip away some of the varnish on the painting in order to restore some of what the master originally intended. So we too need to say, restore my heart, O God. Do some touch-ups here and there where my character is lacking. Some things have built up, some ugliness there, and I need you to sanctify me and conform me more into the image of your son. So our witness should be obvious and compelling and visible 
so that others would also want to pursue Christ. And second, we should imitate Christ in our boldness. What a change grace did in the heart of Peter. Just 60 days before, Peter had followed Christ at a distance and with curses denied three times that he even knew him. And now here he is standing unafraid and unashamed before the highest Jewish court and he's boldly preaching the resurrection of Christ. But Peter knew that before he even spoke one word to these religious leaders, he first needed the Holy Spirit to do a work in their hearts. Sometimes our enemy, sometimes the task before us can seem too big, too overwhelming. And we are too scared. So before we even speak, before we act, we also need to trust and rely on the Holy Spirit to give us strength in our weakness. This was an intimidating group, the Sanhedrin, the very court which had condemned Jesus to death. And when they hear Peter and John, they were stunned. What they were seeing and hearing didn't fit together. Their boldness and their lack of education. And this leaves these religious leaders speechless. It says in verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. So they say in verse 16, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place among them, it's apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Verse 17, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. In this name. They were so intimidated by Jesus, they couldn't even use his name. So they tell Peter and John, just be quiet. Stop preaching. But to tell Peter and John to stop preaching would be like trying to tell a forest fire to stop spreading. Because they say in verse 20, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. They speak to what they have witnessed, the risen Christ. And their experience with the living Jesus has made them nearly unstoppable in their mission. But their boldness did not come from within. Paul says in Ephesians 3.12 that we have in Christ boldness and confident access through faith in him. We too must imitate him in our boldness. We must never blush. We must never be ashamed to admit that we live and breathe and are sold out for the cause of Christ. And we don't need formal training. We don't need seminary courses in preaching. 
We need the power of the Spirit to proclaim the gospel. We need boldness. We need clarity. And these things come from spending time with Jesus, spending time with him in prayer, in worship, in his word, and our fellowship with him and our own personal experience with Christ should also enable us to say, I can't stop. I can't stop speaking to what I have seen and heard. But our boldness should also be mingled with love and grace and humility. We must imitate him in our humility. The Jewish scribes, they observed Peter and John's confidence in Acts 4.13, and it says they understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. This doesn't mean that they were illiterate or unintelligent. It means that they hadn't gone through the formal rabbi training like the men of the Sanhedrin. But these religious leaders were blown away by how the disciples spoke, this unexpected authority in their voices. They were amazed because these Christ followers were humble men from humble means, blue-collar fishermen who are now suddenly going toe-to-toe with these religious experts. Peter and John, they were humble and ordinary men called by God to do some extraordinary things. We read in Acts 4.4 that after two sermons and after the Holy Spirit moving among them, 5,000 people came to faith in Christ. So it doesn't matter the degrees on your wall or the number of zeros on your paycheck. God can use you for your glory, for, for his glory, if we surrender our lives to him in humility. And our example for humility is, of course, Christ. Jesus stooped down to us like no other person could. He bent down from the majesty and divinity of heaven to reach us. He spoke to little children on their level. He got down on one knee and washed the feet of his followers. And then he died in the most humbling way possible by hanging on a tree for the sins of humanity. We must imitate Christ in a way that is visible. We imitate him in our boldness. We imitate him in our humility. And fourth, we imitate Christ by our association with him. Sometimes when I find myself expending spending an extended amount of time with someone, I find myself picking up some of their mannerisms and some of their sayings. And I get home and my wife says, you must have been spending time with your brothers or your dad or Mark or Michael Loudermilk. You know, that's something that they would have said. Husbands and wives, they do this kind of thing too without even realizing it. We pick up each other's behaviors And mannerisms. 
we become like whomever we hang out with. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. This verse is referring to Moses. If you remember, Moses spent 40 days up on the mountain with God. And when he came down from Mount Sinai, the people couldn't even look at him. His face was so bright. It radiated with the glory of God. So Moses had to wear a veil when meeting with the people. But Paul says, now we as believers with unveiled face can behold the Lord as in a mirror. We can get glimpses and reflections of Christ in moments and relationships and time in prayer and in his word. And Christ reveals himself to us when we come to him by faith. And then God changes us. Notice the present tense. We are being transformed into the image and imitation of Christ. But this is a lifelong process of sanctification from glory to glory. And it doesn't come from us, but from the Lord through the Spirit. Here at the end of this verse, Acts 4.13, the Jewish leaders, they recognize Peter and John as having been with Jesus. Christ was in these men and speaking through them. It's impossible to sum up just how much the disciples would have learned from those three years in such close proximity with Jesus. Listening to him teach, hearing him pray, watching how he interacted with people. They knew Jesus by spending time with him. And as a result, they knew so much more than all the men on the Sanhedrin. When others observe your life, would they say, I can tell that that person has been spending time with the Lord. I see that she's a woman of prayer. I see in him a heart for worship, a heart for God's word, a heart for God's people. I notice an association with Jesus. We must let our lives be a living example, a living exhibit in the gallery of this world, not in our own frame with our own abilities and intellect on display, but a display of the master's work in us. So when others peer closely, at your life, they would say, I recognize this. I know this work. I know the hands who created this masterpiece. And they will be drawn to the maker. How should we imitate him? It reminds me of when I was a student at Churchill High School. It was my senior year, and it was right before the last class of the day. And I was standing there with, uh, at, at my locker 
and my torn brother Sam was there, and, and I said, I'm bored. You know, bad things usually happen when you say that, right? And I said to Sam, why don't we switch classes? Okay. It was in those final months right before graduation, so we both kind of had a bad case of senioritis, and so Sam said, great. So we go to the, to the restroom and change T-shirts, like somehow this was going to play a huge role in this little heist. We both wore glasses at the time, you know, pre-LASIK, and so we switched glasses as well. Boom, a whole new disguise. And I was going to go into his government class, and he was going to go into my chemistry class. So he told me, this is where I sit. Great. So I go into his class, and I sit right there in the front row. And I should have played things kind of low-key, but I wanted to kind of push the envelope just a little bit. And the guy sitting right behind me was a friend of ours, and he said, hey, Sam. And I said, hey, it's, it's not Sam, it's, it's Will. And he said, oh, okay, that's great, okay. Don't worry, I'll, I won't say anything. And that was right before he turned around and told the guy behind him. <laughs> and it just spread like that throughout the room. And so as the class started, the teacher started asking some questions. And, and again, I should have kind of played things low-key, but I would raise my hand a few times and answer some of the questions. And when I would do that, you'd hear some giggling kind of in the back because people knew that it wasn't Sam. The class went on, and then the, the bell rang, and, and everybody got up to leave, and, and I said bye to the teacher. And she said, just hold on one second. Mr. Davis. Everyone left, but the door was still open a crack, and you could hear some people out there kind of laughing and listening to what the teacher was going to say to me. So the teacher walks over to the door, grabs the doorknob, slams it shut, turns around and says, that was not a very smart move, Mr. Davis. This class was a review for your brother's pop quiz tomorrow. Oops. She was right. That wasn't a smart move. So young people, don't try this in your school. Unless you have a twin, and then you know, maybe go for it. Um, I apologized to the teacher, and I slunk out of that class and, and made that walk of shame back to my locker. And then I see Sam come bouncing down the hall, this big smile on his face, and he said, man, that was so much fun. The teacher immediately recognized me, and she said, come on in. You know, I can't believe you all switched classes. Make yourself at home. And he said, how did it go for you? <laughs> I didn't say anything. You know, I felt like dirt. I felt like crawling up in, into that locker, into the fetal position, and staying there overnight. I was so embarrassed and ashamed for what I had done. I was embarrassed and ashamed for the way that I had tried to impersonate and imitate my brother. But when we seek to imitate Christ and walk in step with him, we will never be embarrassed. We will never be ashamed for imitating him. But we can't be more like him until we know him. We must first know him as our Savior and our Redeemer 
Peter says in Acts 3.19 that if we repent and return to him, our sins will be wiped away. They will be erased by the blood of Christ. We must say to God, Lord, I'm a shapeless lump of clay. Mold me and make me into something beautiful to be used by you. I remember reading recently about how federal agents are trained to stop money counterfeiters. They aren't told to focus on the counterfeit bills, but to become experts on the real, genuine bills, to master the look of the real thing. So when they come across a fake, they recognize it. When others observe and study our lives, we want them to think, this person is the real deal. The resemblance to Christ is obvious. I recognize, him, I recognize him as a true follower of Christ. It is no longer she that lives, but Christ that lives in her. And look how Peter makes his defense in Acts 4.11. He doesn't say, this is my word against yours. No, he uses the word of God. That great messianic passage Psalm 118.22, this is the stone which you, the builders, rejected, but which has become the chief cornerstone. If you think of the kingdom of God as a building and the religious leaders as the builders, they examined the stone named Jesus to see if he could fit in the wall. But they threw him out as unusable. But God, the great architect, came along and saw the stone lying there in the grave and God raised him up and made him not just a brick, but the chief stone of the kingdom. Peter, this former fisherman, now called to be a fisher of men, has cast out the net through the healing of this crippled man. And then he sets the bait by using the word of God and pointing them to Messiah. And now it's time to draw on the net, to pull in the catch. And he says in verse 12, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is found in him alone. And the more you and I associate with Jesus, the more we spend time with him in prayer, the more we spend time with other believers reading his word, the more we will become like him and the more others will notice that we have been with him. In closing, I heard John MacArthur speak recently about Christ in us through the story of the ugly duckling. If you all remember this story, there was once a duckling who was unlike anyone else in his family. He was rejected and scorned, so he left home and found himself in the company of a hen and a cat. And the hen ridiculed the duckling because the duckling couldn't lay eggs like the hen. And the cat scorned the duckling because the duck couldn't purr or climb like the cat. 
So the duckling, once again rejected, makes his way out on his own. And as the seasons change, the duckling is one day swimming out on a lake. When there across the lake, he sees the most beautiful bird that he's ever seen, a swan. And the duckling suddenly becomes afraid because he realizes this swan is swimming right for him. And as the swan approaches, the duckling bows his head in humility and he covers his face with his wings. But as he bows his head, he looks down into the water and he sees his reflection. And he realized that he is not the ugly duckling that others told him that he was his entire life. But he's a beautiful swan too. We are made in God's image. And as we humble ourselves, and as we look at our reflection in the light of Christ, God finds us beautiful too. And that is what we were meant to be, beautiful imitations of Christ. Some of you may look back on this last year, maybe perhaps look back on your life and view it as somewhat of a rough draft. You see some ugliness there. You see a lot of red pin marks and question marks and scratch-throughs and do-overs that you wish would have gone differently. And perhaps you've tried to crumble up that past and throw it away. But that's the great thing about a rough draft. There's always that second draft. There's always that second chance. There's always that third chance. Failure is never final with the follower of Christ. Because God may be using those mishaps and those trials and those corrections to refine you and purify you and move you more toward that final product that he wants for your life. So let your imitation be visible. Imitate Christ in your boldness. Imitate him in your humility. Forgive your enemies as he did. Imitate him in his love, in the fervency of his prayers, in his compassion, in his grace, so that others would say, you have been with Jesus. As we make our way to the communion table, the sacrifice that Christ made for us should be on our hearts and minds. For Jesus became like one of us. He condescended to earth in, in great humility. In the incarnation, God became flesh, the theme of Christmas that we just celebrated. As one theologian wrote, he stripped himself of the insignia of majesty. He was something who became nothing. The infinite became an infant. And he lived like us, minus sin. And he did nothing wrong, 
But in order to satisfy the wrath of God against our sin, he had to die a painful, shameful, cursed, lonely death for me and for you. And he died in our place in order to purchase our salvation. But the grave could not hold him. He rose from the dead. And when we place our faith in him alone, not only do we receive that gift of eternal life, but we receive his spirit that resides in us. And Jesus told his disciples to share in the Lord's table as a way to remember his sacrifice. In just a moment, as we take of the bread, we remember the body of Christ broken for us. And then as we drink of the cup, we remember his blood, which was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. But before we take of these elements, I would encourage you to first make things right with the Lord. Come to him by faith. If necessary, make things right with others in your heart as well. And then we invite you to hold the bread, hold the the juice, and we will all take those together. I'll ask the ushers to please serve us at this time.
celebrating the Lord's table is not a wayside thing, but a believer's thing. And it's an ordinance that we do together to put our focus on Christ and memorialize his sacrifice for us. Paul wrote in his first letter to the church in Corinth, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink of the cup. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the cross. For the cross showed us your holiness. For you had to pour out your wrath and divine justice on our sin. But at the very same time, the cross showed us your relentless love because you chose to give up your very own son rather than lose us. So thank you for that holiness and love which you showed us on the cross. And Father, this year we want to know you more. For some, it may be meeting you for the very first time. For others, we need to surrender more of our lives to you. And by your spirit, see you transform us more and more into your image, your reflection from glory to glory. And I pray, Father, that if there are any here that are on the fence this morning, they're not sure if they want to give up control to you. I pray that you would do a work in their hearts so that they could push all their chips in, so to speak, and go all in for you. We want to imitate your son by our association with him, through our humility, through our boldness, and follow him in a way that reveals an obvious resemblance to Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If we can pray for you in any way, please come on down and speak to one of our prayer partners. They would love to pray for you this morning. Have a blessed day and a great new year.